It would be my honor to invite you to stand with me as we read from God's word today. Found in the book of Nehemiah chapter 8. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine. And send portions to them of those to whom, for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is, the holy, is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them, the word of God. Please be seated. Oh, good morning, happy Sabbath. Something special about the Sabbath. It just, it, it, it elicits a lot of joy in my heart. No matter how bad a week is, no matter how rough Friday and Thursday and Wednesday and Tuesday was, something about Sabbath that invites me to rest in Jesus, to know that I've got a community who will surround me and that I will surround, and together there will be joy in the Lord. I think this was probably a good idea of what chapter 8 looks like. Now, last week, Pastor Devo, he took on chapter 6 on the resistance, knowing our why, knowing who we are, knowing our faith. All that was found in Nehemiah's experience in chapter 6. Chapter 7, we're going to move past, and today I want to pick up on the renewal found in chapter 8. We find the people responding to the word of God. Chapter 8 is a communal, collective response to the word of God as Ezra reads it. Listen to this. This is how the congregation of Israel responds. All the people gathered into the square before the water gate. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could hear with understanding. This was the first day of the seventh month. He read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early in the morning until midday. In the presence of men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, amen, lifting their hands. Then they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is the congregational response to the hearing of God's word. 
I'm, I, I'm, I read this this week and I had to read it over and over and I was just, I was just overwhelmed by how the word of God can elicit from us this, this very tangible, very real, very corporeal and communal expression of, of response. Um, the people gathers. So we see there's an importance here that they gather together. And I believe that every faith community is based on gathering together. It is important for God's body to be together. That is imperative. To eat, to serve, to laugh, to cry, to be born, to die together. Then they requested for the word to be given. And then Ezra gets up. And he begins to read of the Torah from early morning until midday. Somebody say mercy. <laughs> from early morning to midday, my guy gave the longest sermon in all of history. That's six, seven, maybe eight hours. We just don't do that today. I know you, you, you care for me and I know you support me, but if I went, if I went that, y'all would leave. You'll be at home watching it online talking about, he's still going, honey. I know. I know. Turn it off. <laughs> Can't handle the brother. He just keeps talking, yo. Six hours, seven hours, he goes. He's in the text. Peoples, my peoples on a Sabbath at 12.15, I need to go to lunch. I grew up in a church like this. My grandfather was a pastor, very well-known pastor in Tonga. And, man, when we go to church, we go to church like around seven, eight. And then we'd stay there until like Tuesday. <laughs> and we didn't fall asleep. Don't you fall asleep during my grandfather's wet. Don't you do it. My grandfather will stop. The deacons will come slap you in the back of your head. And you will wake up saying, mm, amen, praise the Lord. <laughs> Six to eight hours worth of the Torah. And the people were hungry. They were famished. Their response was to be there. But not only that, not only that, but when he begins to go into the Torah, they stand up. Six to eight hours of standing, my family. That is a lot of standing time. I know that when we do it here, if, if we get too many verses in, you all get a little bit tired. You're like, when's he going to stop reading the text? That's a long chapter. Just read two verses, Pastor. Our legs get tired. We, I, have a, I have a standing desk in my office. It's a conference table. And I, because I like to stand, I think better when I'm standing. So, you know, I'm working, I'm standing. And, and when the pastors come in, we have our pastors meeting meet, midweek. Some, most time we'll just stand. We'll have the desk standing there. But listen, depending on how bad Tuesday night was, or if you had a horrible Wednesday morning, you don't want to stand the whole time. This is, uh, this, it looks like this sometimes. You just throw that picture up real quick. This is, look at, look at Pastor Ben. He looks like a baby. <laughs> but this is what happens when your legs get tired, right? You're like, I'm not standing anymore. I'm going to look ridiculous and crazy, and I'm going to just sit down. Look at his eyes. Watch, watch this. Look at, look at how he's looking at me right now. You know what he's saying right there? Put the desk down. Put the desk down. Six to eight hours. The text elicits a response of standing, of hearing. There's a communal response 
of amen and amen. And, and I know that culturally this is different from different worship spaces to others. And, and in some worship spaces, we're able to, to be responsive and we're very dialogical in our preaching and our talking and, and, and the sermon and the, the word becomes life and, and we speak to each other. And in other spaces, um, to be able to say amen takes a lot in you to bring it out because it's not of our, it's not of our, our natural uh, uh, nurtured worship space. This community says the amen. They begin to speak back. These are important practices of a, of a church community because the reality is it's a communal response to affirming the truth that has been declared. And when we want to be able to declare communally, collectively that yes, these are values and principles and pieces of our faith that we stand upon, the congregation says amen. It's not for the pastor. Unfortunately, some pastors forget that. It's, it's, not, it's not for the pastor. And, and maybe because we feel like, well, we don't want to uplift an individual, we, we say, no, that's, we don't want to do that. We don't want to uh, elicit that kind of response from a, from a minister to try to jump through those hoops, which may be true, but in reality, the amen and the response is for the communal affirmation of the truth that is being presented about God and the world. There it is. Finally, they lift their hands. This one, I think, is, Pastor Ben, the, the most awkward one for us Adventists. Adventists, we're not, our sentimentality is not very high. That's not our thing. Adventists, we're, very, we're, we're cognitive people, aren't we? We're, we're here. We're very heady. We like that. Give us numbers and dates. Give us a passage about another passage that might have a passage in that passage. Let us talk about signs of the time, the Bible and the news. We want to, this is us, feed us like this. And when we do that, we're like, ooh, that's so good. We're the nerdy cousin in the, in the Christian family. <laughs> the, other Christian, the other Christian kids are playing outside, having a good time. We're like inside, ooh, what can I find out about the Bible? That's us. So our sentimentality is not so great. We, 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 had, we had to more recently become part of our ethos as a, as a church, raising our hands. And even that's still kind of awkward and weird, and we can attest to that. That's okay, say amen to that, right? Right. You ever, you ever experienced standing next to somebody who's completely celebratory with their hands and they start sweating on you? And you're like, oh, brother, Jesus is real. You don't have to do exercise. We get it. Here's the beautiful thing about the raising of the hands. There's no worship music that elicits the raising of hands. Somebody think about that and say amen. amen. How many wars and battles do we have in church over worship preference? It isn't about worship presence, preference in music. It's about the word of God and how it becomes real in our lives. And it doesn't matter if we have a guitar or a bass or an organ or some cellos. If we leave this place less than, than God wants us to be, we have failed as a church. The people don't need music to elicit the raising of hands. The people needed the very concrete, tangible word of God to touch down for them to put their hands up and say, Amen. That doesn't mean worship and praise is bad. Praise team, thank you so much. We, can we give them some? We appreciate you. And all of it is, all of it is. Can we say amen to that? 
oh, this thing and that thing and the thing in the back and those things up there, all of it is beautiful. But if all we ever do is focus on this and not on that, we've lost. It is about God touching down into our lives and creating communal connectedness between us where we don't just come to consume. By the way, if you're visiting with us, this is not a, a consumer church. We don't want you to just come, get something good, and leave. We want you to come and get your hands dirty and work. Turn to somebody and say, we're going to do work. Welcome to our church. Young people, I know, if you're here, this is your first time, you're like, hey, what's this about? It's about a working church. We want to put in. We want to, to be a part of each other's lives. We want to hear each other's story. Diversity matters to us. I am here because it makes a difference to my neighbor, to my, to my person in the pew before me, to the, to the family on that side. We are here to invest into each other as Jesus calls us to. We are a working church. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. This is what it elicits from the people. And as Ezra does this for six to eight hours, the response from the people is to stand, to raise their hands, to be in awe men, to be in awe. This is a very oral community. The oral tradition is still very strong. Not a lot of people can read. This is the Torah. We're, we're sure it's not all of the Hebrew text at this point. Uh, it's most likely the first five. Moses' writings are in there, and, and maybe Ezra throws in some of his scrolls because he's the one reading, and, and he has that down. So it's not complete, but, but for sure, it's the story of, of the formation of these people, the birth of who they are, what they've gone through, God's covenant with them. They're falling away, and they're living of their, what they choose to be a comfortable community of faith, and then the, the exile that begins to happen in their lives, the, the oppression from the other major communities in the area. And now that they're in the return, they're listening here, and it's all renewing to their soul. They're, they're starting something fresh and new. This is how renewal happens. When we come into the presence of God, and he begins to mold us as a community together to do something fresh. Chapter 7 ends this way. When the seventh month came, the people of Israel having been settled in their towns. The people have settled in chapter 7. Now this is a good way to end Nehemiah. We, we should just finish it here. This is how we end our movies. We like to end our movies and this, and everyone is happy. Close scene, the camera begins to pan into the sky. You see the, the end sign and the production stuff. This is a great way to end the story. But, but for me personally, the, I think the, the reason why it doesn't end here is because renewal doesn't happen when we settle. Turn to someone and say, don't settle. Renewal can't happen if we settle. We, we just, it, it does not work that way. In short, gathering around the word of God together causes conversion. So we need to have a conversion experience together on a regular basis. That renews our spirit. That renews our mind. That renews our sense of, of purpose for each other and for the world. Conversion, according to Jürgen Moltmann, conversion means turning around. The turn from violence to justice, from isolation to community, from death to life. 
This is what it means to be convert, uh, to be to have conversion. And so this is the experience we need to have regularly. We can't settle with the things we once knew. It's not good enough that that we would say something like, "Well, this is how we've always done it." It's not good enough to say that. We must be willing to come into a space where together with God, God begins a conversion in our life. Every time we come together, it ought to turn us away from our violent ways. Every time we get together, it ought to turn us away from our self-preserving ways. Every time we come together, it should turn us away from our individualistic ways, from our, from our consuming ways. It, it ought to turn us away from death to life. This conversion does not happen when we settle, but when we are awakened. As the people are awoken to this conversation and this conversion, they are confronted with their past failings and lostness, with their own violence, with their own isolation, with their story of broken ways and broken covenants, with their ways of compromise, and eventually with their ways of being taken into captivity. They are faced with the reality that in and of themselves, they fail at being chosen. So they weep. Back to the text we started with. For all people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and spend portions of their time to, the, with the, to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is the renewal process. To come back into the story that is larger than the one I've created for myself. My story is not just that I made it through school and I pay my bills and I have a, an amazing fresh car, 2007 Prius, it's amazing. I know you're jealous. I see the way you drive by me on the parking lot, looking at my gorgeous Prius with the flat tires, <laughs> wishing you were in that car. My story is not one that I have built from my own doings and being able to pull myself up from my individual bootstraps and making a point to the world that I am indeed worthy. My story is that no matter how I try, I continue to fail. My story is that I would not be here had God not put me in a community that would help me tie my straps together. My story is not that one of isolation and individuality. My story is birthed in a community that cares enough to say, your life matters. The fact that you will succeed matters to all of us. And when one of us succeeds, we all succeed. This is indeed what it means to be well, right? I, I hear Pastor Steve say it all the time. When Pastor Steve and I go around to the city, he always tells the city this. The city knows our mantra because Pastor Steve tells everybody that. He's like, well, you know, at uh, last year university church, uh, he, talks like, he talks like a politician when he's around the city people. And he has a little twang. I don't know why the twang comes out. It always comes out. Well, I want you to know that in our church, be well means when the least of us is good, we're all good. This is what it means to be part of a larger conversion story. We are faced with the reality that we and of ourselves fail. But our story is much deeper 
and more beautiful and magnificent and complex and built together than we often realize. Unfortunately, churches have gotten into, have gotten into the habit of separating out via their church style. So I go to this church because they got this going on, or I go to this church because everybody looks like me, or I go to this church because they're all my age, or I go to this, you know what? And that, and that may be a descriptive way to look at the world because in the world we are segmented and we, we enjoy being around that. Um, but in the church, it is the place where neither male nor female, male nor, male nor female, slave nor master, Greek nor Jew, but all are one in Jesus. Where we find ourselves diverse, and appreciative of our preference, and yet for the sake of the togetherness, we say, I am here not because of my preference, but because of my personal connection with others. This is what it means to be part of a community. Yes. That's an affirmation of what you choose to do every Sabbath when we come together. Every Sabbath. Whether the sermon was amazing, whether it was bad, whether the praise was perfect or mm, that one person just wasn't. Whether it's got high church, beautiful, powerful organs flowing from the pipes or a guitar or just a single voice. All those things, as good as they are, never matter as us being together as a family. This is a story that's larger than just our story. In this renewal process of conversion, the people begin to weep and mourn, and they're awakened to the fact that they fail by themselves, they make mistakes, they've compromised, they've detoured. There's no way that we're really gonna be able to raise out of the ashes from the problems we've had. This is hundreds of years in the making. We've, we've deviated so far off, we don't even know what it looks like to be right. We're trying to start all over again, but it just doesn't seem like it's gonna work. There are people who are trying to infiltrate. Are we, how is, how is this all gonna happen? And they realize that they are unworthy and that they fall short of the plans that, and the covenant that God had for them. They realize that they're not able to keep their part of the deal. They realize that no matter how much they will try, they will never be good enough. Here's the thing. John the Revelator also recognized that when he wrote the book of Revelation. There's a, a chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters in the book of Revelation. If you haven't read it, go back today. Read chapter 5. What chapter? Five, chapter 5 of Revelation. Let me just read a little bit. Then I saw the right hand of the one who's seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scrolls or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scrolls or to look into it. Then the one of the elders who said to me, stop weeping, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls in the seven seals. Then I looked and I heard the voices of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands singing with full voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and, and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb. The blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Let the church say amen. John Revelator, who has isolated himself hundreds of years, centuries of time set apart. You've got Nehemiah and their people who's feeling demolished as failures, not being able to complete the task, breaking covenant. And John, who's isolated, broken away from the empire that he's in. Both these parties are feeling the tension of being in a place of failure. John realizes he's not able to open these scrolls. And then the elder says, but there is one. There is someone who sits upon the throne, the lion and the lamb. So while we are not able to open these covenants, fulfill them, and free the seals, Jesus frees them for us. Our joy at the end of chapter 8. Your joy, Nehemiah says, is not, what, is not in what you can do. Your joy is found in the Lord, and that joy of the Lord will be your strength. So people, people they were told to drink and eat, eat fat. I'm not telling you to eat fat, don't eat fat. But if you do, enjoy it. <laughs> to drink, period, I'm not gonna go on with that one. and to serve others, to prepare for what others cannot prepare for themselves. You see, it's come back to this, right? That it's not just about you, it's about us. And the more we remove our eyes from ourselves and our failings and our smallness and we pour into the life of others, God renews all of us in a conversion experience. So here's one thing you can take to go away with. How can we do this as a church? Well, God's grace is for us and not just for us, but God's grace is for us for others. God grants us grace so that we can extend it into the world. But guess what? We can't extend the grace to the world unless we first extend grace to ourselves. When you, don't, when you can't accept God's grace for your life, guess what? You're not going to give that grace to anybody else. So the first thing we can do, the first step as a church full of addicts to works, addicts to our own built stories, is to stop and grant yourself grace. Would you do that today? Be gracious to yourself. It's okay. We all make mistakes. Turn to the person next to you and say, it's okay, we all make mistakes. It's okay. If you're watching along today and you're at home because maybe you are frightened by this group of human beings, don't worry, we've all made mistakes. Come, this is a place to be. Grant yourself grace. Don't hoard it, though. When you've experienced that grace, the very next implication is to give that grace away. If you have experienced the gospel story and its reality and its concreteness in your own life, the responsibility on your part is to extend it to others. 
to grant others that very same grace. And do the same then, repeat and rinse and wash with grace, rinse and wash with forgiveness, rinse and grace uh, and wash yourself with love, rinse and wash over and repeat over and over again with the fact that you are valuable. Man, I just, this is so important to me. Young people over here and over there and somewhere in this area, if you would, and if you're there, if there, if you're there, hear me now, you are valuable just the way you are. You are valued and loved just the way. I'm going to start crying. Stop it. Oh, when did we lose this? This very important task. Because somewhere along the way, we, our identity has been wrapped around what the world tries to, to, to put onto our lives. And I don't want any of my children and any of our kids here to ever feel like they've got to be something they're not. If you look like Cinderella, praise God. If you don't praise the Lord, somebody say amen. We have all of these preconceived notions and ideas and we float it around and it suddenly gets moved to the playground and, it, and we begin to hear it uh, across social media in tweets and in and, and the DMs and all of a sudden, all of us, not just our children, we begin to think like there's something broken, something wrong about us and we've got to be or look or, or feel or, or, or present a certain way of ourselves for others to value us and then when they value us, we can value ourselves. Stop now, it's a game that never ends. It's a rabbit hole we can't get to the bottom of. You are valued just the way you are. You are loved just the way you are. You are enough just the way you are. No, you're not perfect. Yes, we do fail. But God loves us. The word says that we were made Fearfully and wonderfully, each of us. And this is who we are. And once we begin to accept that, come on up, praise team. Do you have a song? All right, come on up, praise team. <laughs> once we begin to sit in a space where we accept that goodness into our own lives, we can then extend it to the communities around us. So do you believe, really, do you believe that you are loved? Do you really believe that you're valued? Have you fully accepted the grace of God in your life to do magnificent and beautiful conversion things? As the people sat before Nehemiah, or they stood before Ezra, they wept because they realized oh, we haven't been that. Ezra does not allow them to stay there. Nehemiah doesn't allow them to stay there. Nehemiah says, get up. Collectively, let's go into this world. You are amazing and beautiful, not because of your own doing, but because that's just the way God made you. 
You are special not just in his eyes, but you are special in this world just as you are. And this world can only be changed until you and I have settled on just being ourselves. Then he says, now, go. Go in that light and begin to feed those who cannot feed themselves that truth. <laughs>